My favorite seafood, Lincot is one underrated option. It's extremely buttery. I'll take a bunch of high-end miso that I buy at a Japanese shop. I'll mix that with soy sauce, water, and sugar, and then I'll marinate for 24 to 36 hours, pan fry it, drizzle it with a little bit more sauce, and serve it like that. And it's delicious. One of my favorite dishes. Okay, if you're hungry at this point, you're not the only one. My name is Joe. I'm 23 years old. Joe's always hungry. He keeps seafood on the plates of thousands of Canadians in Vancouver and Toronto every single day. But he's not a chef. I actually come from a family full of scientists, and I'm the only one that kind of ventured into business. Joe's an entrepreneur. Like thousands of Canadian business founders, he's got a great story. And we want you to hear it. This is Earning Curve, a new podcast from Interact and Gimlet Creative. I'm Michelle Remino. As a dragon on Dragon's Den and as a serial entrepreneur myself, I can tell you this. No one builds a business on their own. On each episode of this show, we're letting you listen in on conversations between early stage founders like Joe and seasoned experts who are paving the way for 21st century businesses in Canada. From Nova Scotia to Alberta, from Quebec to British Columbia, and with stops in between and beyond. Today, we're in Vancouver. It's home to billion-dollar companies and blue-chip Canadian brands. In a bit, we'll talk to Ryan Holmes, founder of one of those companies, Hootsuite. He was one of the first to recognize the importance of what Jolie was doing, clearing away the clutter of middlemen. So I want you to understand what Ryan knows about the value of staying transparent as you grow. But first, back to Joe. He's in his early 20s, but he's already been an entrepreneur for a really long time. I was originally born and raised in Seoul, South Korea. And at the age of seven, I immigrated to Vancouver. Really, the first business I started uh, was when I was 14. I would buy phones, laptops, 10, 20 at a time. And then I would basically go out and sell to individual consumers, you know, in parking lots and in homes and in a couple sketchy places across Vancouver. I went on to to start a candle company. That's actually where my current co-founder and I first convened. We noticed a lot of these younger entrepreneurs building ventures and pitching them on TV. And, you know, we started thinking, why not us? We would have uh, giant bags of shredded wax, candle coloring. We would have scents, a whole bunch of wicks. And we would just boil them in our our pots and pans uh, in our kitchens. And you know, try to sell them off in farmer's markets. After those early attempts, Joe went off to university, but he stayed in touch with his candle-making partner. Eventually, they hit on a new idea, one that has become a nationwide company with global ambitions. They call it Coastline Market, and the basic idea is, well, do you know where your seafood has been? So the problem that we identified was seafood can change hands anywhere from 5 to 12 times between source and sale. And really, there's a lot of lack of transparency in the supply chain. A fisher basically goes out to the water and fishes for a week, two weeks at a time, comes back onto the dock, and they basically sell all of their catch to what's known as a packer. Okay, it starts to get complicated and they will go on and sell to a processor. 
and then they will sell to a wholesaler. But basically... From there on, it'll get sold to either a secondary wholesaler. Joe and Coastline want to remove all of these middlemen so that the fishermen make a better profit and the restaurants get fresher fish. Some fishers may be paid 65 cents per pound, and by the time it gets to the restaurant, it's $3 per pound. What we really wanted to do and focus on is how do we let fishers and harvesters sell direct to restaurants in the most seamless manner uh, through the use of technology. So on our app, uh, chefs and restaurateurs and and grocery chains, uh, they can essentially see all of the available products, prices, uh, as well as the traceability information that can help inform their purchasing decision right on the app. And that's essentially their interface for communicating and uh, interacting with Coastline. Lots of people are used to buying and researching online, but fishing takes a very different skill set. We want to integrate into the fisher's uh, traditional workflow as much as possible. So Joe had to figure out how to make his electronic platform useful to people who work on the ocean all day. To figure it out, he took a few trips. I guess one of the most striking examples of that is when I flew up to um, the Alaskan Panhandle um, kind of on a solo trip. It was quite the experience, uh, almost life-changing, I would say. Um, You know, coming from a metropolitan city and, you know, constantly being surrounded by tech, you you immerse yourself in a town that doesn't have cell phone reception, you know, that doesn't have internet. Uh, It was eye-opening for sure. Um, a lot of these uh, folks didn't even have cell phones. They were communicating through walkie-talkies within the entire community. So that's when we started thinking, what's an alternative that we can we can pursue so that we can you know accommodate villages and you know fishers that are like this, as well as you know the tech savvy and and kind of the everyday everyday fishers down in the lower mainland. Joe and Coastline have found a winning combination of tech and human interaction. We've grown to service over 200 restaurants and businesses across Vancouver and Toronto. We have some of the biggest national and, and regional names across Vancouver, across BC and Canada as a whole. We've quickly gone from a very, very small startup to you know surpassing and being somewhere in, in seven figures. We've been growing you know over 20% month over month uh, in terms of our revenues over the last um, eight months or so. So we've seen some crazy, crazy growth. Uh, so much that, you know, we've had a hard time keeping up with it and having the bandwidth to execute on, on all the opportunities. As you can imagine, that astronomical growth is keeping Joe busy. Uh, what does my day-to-day look like? I think that's uh, a really tough question to answer uh, because I don't really have a day-to-day. I consider myself to be an operator and a doer. For me, I focus on whatever needs to get done to really move the needle forward for the company in a very tangible way. So whether that means me coding and you know developing the actual technology behind our product, designing our product, marketing our product, or actually going door-to-door, selling to kind of these larger chains and, and doing cold calls and sales. For me, I just do whatever it takes. We see Coastline really being deployed across every major North American city, and we see that opportunity really coming into fruition over the next five to seven years. So that's kind of our ambition. We are you know, actively raising money as well as adding to our employee count as well, you know, doing what we can to grow as quickly as we can and to become you know, a dominant player in the seafood industry.
Joe and his co-founder dropped out of university to make Coastline a reality, but their education hasn't stopped. In fact, they've picked up a few blue-chip mentors along the way. One of the earliest and most important one of these is Ryan Holmes, founder of Hootsuite, a killer billion-dollar Vancouver company. Coming up after the break, we'll meet Ryan Holmes. I'll sit down with him and Joe to talk about what it's like having a front row seat to an exploding business. Hi, I'm Ryan Holmes. I am the CEO and founder of Hootsuite and a serial entrepreneur. Meet Ryan Holmes. Like Joe, Ryan started a number of businesses at an early age, from a pizza restaurant to a paintball field. Today, his tech company, Hootsuite, is a global phenomenon. Along the way, Ryan has become a vocal cheerleader for Canadian entrepreneurship. A huge part of that vision is mentoring and finding more people like Joe. So I sat down with Joe and Ryan together to talk about what it's like to ride a rocket of success from the earliest stage and how you harness your early vision and use honesty and transparency to your advantage. A few things to note before we dive in. First, there was an enormous forest fire in British Columbia when we had this conversation this summer. So I was Skyping in from a hotel room in Banff. Second, to be explicit, Joe and Ryan have known each other for a couple years. Okay, here's Ryan. Yeah, well, the first time I met Joe was through uh, LOI, League of Innovators, which is a charity nonprofit that I founded a few years ago. And the whole thesis of this initiative is to help find and accelerate young entrepreneurs. And uh, Joe and his co-founder were in one of the cohorts. And when I talk to successful entrepreneurs, I always do a straw poll and ask them how many people in the room uh, were at one point uh, a young entrepreneur, a teenage entrepreneur. And it's so fascinating how many of them stick up their hands. And so this this kind of um, trait, uh, uh, sickness of being entrepreneurial uh, kind of exhibits itself at a young stage. And I say sickness in the funniest way possible, <laughs> kindest way possible. But, you know, I think that entrepreneurs from an early age um, kind of get an endorphin hit by solving a problem, creating something that people love and want and desire or, you know, are passionate about, want to consume, whatever it is, they get a feeling from it that they love. And I think having that happen at an early age, whether it's a lemonade stand or a candle stand or a paintball field, um, is is addictive. And it kind of sets you up to, to wanting to do more. And you want to go solve more problems, bigger problems, find bigger opportunities, and uh, that's something that, you know, I've continued to, to aim to do through my career and we'll, we'll kind of keep doing for the rest of it. And so let's go back to the age thing, because I actually think that we sometimes talk about the downsides. But, you know, I actually think there can be a huge upside in being young. And, you know, how do you, how do you leverage that as a true advantage? That's actually one of the first questions that gets popped uh, whenever I walk into a meeting, you know, uh, with, you know, a room full of uh, 40, 50, 60-year-olds. How old are you? Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I went to paint wrinkles on my face 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I think, uh, not to say this is a blanket statement, but a lot of older kind of executives or industry players aren't as tech-savvy as, as kind of digital natives like us. So... Uh, that's the angle that we really like to play that, you know, we are marketing savvy, we are digitally savvy and technology savvy, and we can leverage all of these new tools that are out there to 
to basically better their business and and help their bottom line. Joe just gave a great example of turning youth to his advantage. In I, I'd actually say that uh, <laughs> wisdom and age in in the world of technology and startup can be. Uh, a disadvantage from a perception perspective. So if you're going to go walk into a VC and you're 40 years old, the media is actually trained the world that they're looking for a kid in, in his 20s wearing flip-flops and a hoodie. There still is a perception that the next big thing is going to be discovered by a 20-something-year-old in their dorm room. So use that to your advantage. Use that stereotype, and, and you've done just that. And for the, the people listening to this podcast, like, you know, there are very few adults that have enough time to go and just have the, the investment to go and really understand, say, Snapchat or understand, you know, any emerging technology, Bitcoin. The experts in Bitcoin right now have been in Bitcoin for, you know, how many years, Michelle? <laughs> like couple. Couple <laughs> years, most. some. Yeah, I mean, the, the majority of them have been there for, like, I'd say there's probably like 80-20 rule. 80% yeah. of them have been there for six months. So right now, you could be a global leader, a, a thought leader in Bitcoin if you're six months in. So yeah. Yeah. use that to your advantage. Go there and find a new wave. Go and be the expert in that. And and youth is on your side there. And I think sometimes you trip yourself up by being, you know, too experienced and, and having this kind of bureaucracy and, and this process at the back of your mind where you aren't as, yeah, risk-taking and mm-hmm. uh, you're a little bit more pessimistic and, and reserved. So sometimes, you know, a real opportunity really is out there. And you have the expertise to execute on it, but really your prior experiences will will stop you from actually taking that leap of faith. Yeah. So here's a here's a quick mental hack for people that are fundraising. Uh, when you're out there fundraising, and this this was like a a game changer for me, and uh, when I first realized it. So you go and talk to all these VCs who go and see they they see tons of people coming in and pitching them. Um, and, and, you know, they're the daddy Warbucks sitting there with all the money and you don't have money and you want to get the money from the guys with the money. And so you get sweaty and you're like all <laughs> nervous and everything else. But, but what you have to do is try to flip the script and you have to remember. So, so play it out. These guys are actually most often investing other people's money. And if they don't invest this money, they actually are fired. So they have to invest the money. And in thinking about that, you have the product that they want to buy. And so if you come in with a great idea and you permit them to invest in your company, you're actually doing them a favor. So every time you go in and pitch, think about it from that perspective. It's a game changer. It helps you think about like, do you really kind of push back on this? Like, is this somebody that you want to allow to be part of your interesting, exciting company? And, and I tell you, when you do that, it, it will change how you have those meetings and, and change a bit of that age script also that, that I think a lot of people may have uh, because you've got the interesting product, you got the youth, you got the concept, and, and now let them sell you on them. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a, it's a great insight. Um, is, you know, you have the, the product that they need to buy. That's awesome. So, you know, Ryan, like Joe, um, you started, you know, as an entrepreneur very early, uh, just like I did. And so this candle company that you started, Joe, when you were 17, and then, you know, obviously Ryan has an amazing story about, you know, opening up um, the paint bell spot and then the pizza spot, and then that turning into ultimately a billion dollar business with, with Hootsuite. So Ryan, what, what skills or personality traits do you have that have been kind of the most important as, you know, you've built these businesses across many different industries? 
Well, I think the things that you learn in a small business are so important. I call my pizza thing, my my restaurant that I did, my pepperoni MBA. And the the skills and lessons that you learn as being a solo entrepreneur, you learn how to be the the marketer, the salesperson, the operations person, the janitor, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. and chief everything officer, chief right? Chief everything, CEO. all the hats. <laughs> and the interesting thing is like when you get to a bigger company and as I've grown with Hootsuite, um, good news is all of those skills are applicable and valuable. Um, what you I've done is thinking really it, it's given me an opportunity to think about what I love doing and what I don't love doing so much and what I want to get off my plate. And so coincidentally, the things that I love doing are usually the things I'm good at. And um, the, the things that I don't love doing as much are usually the things I want to get off my plate. So, you know, I can, I'm good enough at finance. I can read an income statement, a balance sheet, a cap table. Uh, I can have a conversation about them. But if I had to live that every day, I wouldn't be my best self. And so guess what? I've hired a CFO. He's amazing. He loves the numbers. And uh, that's good. He goes and does that. And then we connect and we have conversation around that. Uh, I gravitate towards product. I gravitate towards um, customer uh, culture, my team, um, and marketing. And those are the things that I kind of spend a lot of my time on and, and uh, that, that I love doing. Stemming from that kind of answer, I'm just curious on my end. Um, at what point do you know um, it's the right time to aggressively delegate uh, all of these tasks instead of having kind of a, a jack of all trades, you know, um, a master of none approach? Right. Well, you know, I think I think sometimes it's financially dictated, right? <laughs> uh, I remember my first hire, my first six-figure executive hire, and I and I was like, man, this this person's <laughs> going to really have to bring it and add value because you know I know you know how much I do, and so I hired this executive, and I'm like, great, two months, they're going to have this whole part of the business taken care of. And so three months comes along, four months comes along, and I'm kind of like, is, are they going to get it? Are they, are they kind of getting it? It's coming it's slower. It's it's always a lot slower than you think. As a scrappy entrepreneur, you can turn on a dime. What I had to learn is that I have everything in my head, mm -hmm. and it takes time to not only get it out of my head, but to get somebody else up to speed. And I've been living this for two years. They haven't been living this at all. And so even though you hire a great executive, you're still going to have to have some patience with it to get that person up to speed right. um, and, and support it. And so uh, be prepared for that because it's not as quick as you might think. Right. Yeah, so let's... let's um Go to growth here. So, I mean, Hootsuite has grown exceptionally quickly. Joe, you're now growing at almost 20% month over month um, and looking at million dollars in revenue. You know, what are you learning about keeping up with that growth? Besides, you know, I, I totally get this piece around. It's very hard to delegate. And even when you hire someone, they're never totally independent uh, without the founder. Right. For me, I think um, that's actually one of the questions that I wanted to, to pose to Ryan. Um, we are growing really rapidly, um, and uh, you know, while we're not seeing hoot level growth uh, over the years, but uh, we are growing very, very quickly. And two hundred and forty percent annual <laughs> growth—that's incredible. That's, that's great. <laughs> Thank uh, you. Congrats. But uh, yeah. um, for us, uh, and for me specifically, uh, what I would really love to hear is 
your thoughts on what's fundamental as you kind of grow from that startup scale of, you know, scrappy five-person team to, you know, 20, 30, 40, or 50-person teams uh, essentially going to scale mode? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there, there's a lot there. Uh, I, I think, first off, you, you, as you're thinking into the executive area, start thinking about what you want to get off your plate. Now, you've got a co-founder, and so you guys are working together. And I, and I imagine you have, uh, you know, if we took the Venn diagram of responsibilities, there's probably not a over, lot of overlap right now. You've got pretty defined areas that are uh, you're both handling, parts of your business you're both handling. Um, one kind of way I think about this is... Uh, Schools of thought around management will say that people can handle between, say, five and fifteen people, and that's a huge range. But but think about it. Call it average of ten. Mm-hmm. And so between the two of you, if you think about it from that perspective, you probably could manage twenty people, kind of at scale. So when you get to your twenty one, twenty second, third, fourth, you're going to start to think about bringing in another layer of management, right? And so the people you bring in at the beginning are the most critical. And so you both are going to want to be really involved in the interview process, working with the people hands-on, because those people are going to be the people that are hiring other people. And this happened to me, you know, I got to 40 people I'd done initial interviews with the first 40 people in the business. Uh, I got to about 40, 50 people, and I couldn't do the first round of interviews anymore. And so I had, um, she was actually an EA that had uh, an HR background, and and she would kind of vet and and reduce the list down to the finalist candidates. I would meet up with the finalist candidates, and that worked well until about 100. And at 100 (laughs) was when, uh, and people told me this would come, and it was a really interesting day, but there was this new Hootsuite employee sitting there, and I looked over to her, and I was like, who's this person? And she's like, we just hired him. He's like, <laughs> and I hadn't met him. And that was like an interesting oh, moment. Wow. It was kind of like, uh, you know, the machine was really turning. But the good thing is I'd worked with this uh, person, at, that my HR leader at this point, as an EA. So we'd worked together really tightly. Right. I had really good trust in her. And she was now my gatekeeper. And so whoever is going to be your gatekeeper when you get to a scale where you can't do all the initial interviews, you have to really have a tight relationship with them, a ton of trust, know that they're going to be able to find the right people that are going to work within your organization and then be able to sell the the vision and mission of what you guys want to go chase down uh, for you. Right. And, and Ryan, do you always hire the most aggressive candidate or like after, you know, now hiring hundreds of different people, if you were to kind of distill it into a couple of things you're looking for, um, what is that? Oh, it's, de- it's definitely not the most aggressive. In in terms of, um, and, and I think this is helpful for Joe and other people that are trying to scale, uh, this is where uh, you, you're practice around mission, vision, values is really helpful. It's very helpful for the HR leader that's going to go out and talk to people. And I didn't really get this prior to it because I'd always been at small business. And if I was doing my pizza shop and somebody asked me, what's my my mission, vision, values, I'd be, <laughs> come on, really? Like, we're making pizza here, guys. But, but, but as you get bigger, 
you, you people want to know. And and if they're not able to ask you as the founder, like, what's the opportunity? Where's Hootsuite going? Like, what are you guys doing with stuff? If they can't ask you that directly, you have to arm your your HR team with that. Right. And so that becomes a real, I, I, I'm a believer now because right. it's something that we use to get alignment with, with people we're onboarding um, to see if it resonates with them. And, and, you know, we're clear on here's our values as a company. Does this sound right to you? Is this something that you can sign up for? And you're really giving uh, your HR team uh, a really valuable uh, skill set there that, that they can benchmark and align new new employees with. Joe, app disruption culture is all about cutting out the middlemen. And, you know, restaurants and supply chains are deeply established and are notoriously uh, have not been disrupted for a long time. So how did you infiltrate those relationships and convince someone to take the chance on you? What were the early days like? You know, did you tell people that you were messing with something too established? Um, and really, how did you how did you infiltrate something that was that was really you know deeply well established? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the fishing and and the food industry as a whole really hasn't changed in in decades, if not if not centuries, right? I know. Uh, my, one <laughs> of my first businesses was a fishery in New Brunswick. It was a hundred percent. I mean, people wouldn't give you cell phone numbers. Sometimes they would tell you that to go to the like blue house on the left side of the street. <laughs> right. Yeah. So for us, uh, I think in the beginning stages. Uh, especially as kind of, you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old peach-faced entrepreneurs, uh, uh, we really had to earn people's trust. So we had to go out there right onto the docks uh, w- uh, when it comes to the supply side and, and talk to these these fishers and build a rapport and build a relationship and really educate them on, on what we were building and how we were going to help them. So you really had to establish the value add on their side. Uh, on the restaurant side, it was really, it's a matter of knocking on doors, you know, door to door to door, um, calling, emailing, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of restaurants across, you know, Vancouver, Toronto, and and trying to get a foothold because really the only thing you have over, you know, established veterans, you know, in this industry is your tenacity and the grit that you have. So having the time that we had and the energy that we had as young entrepreneurs, we we just went out. Uh, talk to as many people as, as possible to to earn their trust and and get going. Well, I mean, you you guys have grit, but you also have a really disruptive model, right? So <laughs> give, you, come on, give yourself some credit on yeah. that one too, right? And, and you couple the two, and that's that's lightning in a bottle, right? Yeah. And so, what was what was your early pitch to them, and why did that take traction when it when you know they probably even pitched on a hundred different things before? Yeah, on, on the supply side, really, our pitch was uh, we wanted to create a way to democratize commercial access to seafood um, on a regional level. So a lot of fishers were were selling to all of these brokers on the dock that were paying them pennies on the dollar compared to, you know, what restaurants were getting at the restaurant. So essentially there was anywhere from a 5 to 12 times markup for essentially the same food that's, you know, been held in storage for, for yeah. you know, days and if they, not a they week. they did the hard work. They were on the fishing boat, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So really the promise for us uh, was to, to, to do our best to, to direct market their products. Uh, to really attach that story to uh, the seafood. So, uh, you know, branding our Pacific Cod, for example, as Larry's Pacific Cod when we sell to restaurants and and helping them earn kind of a, a bit of a bump uh, compared to what they got uh, through the broker was essentially what we, we aim to do through through the supply side. Totally. And I you can totally see that how how these fishermen were from, you know, tightly knit communities, constantly suspicious. And 
you know, for Ryan, in the early Hootsuite days, there was probably the same level of skepticism on a bunch of different things. How, how were those early days and how did you help people get over that original hump? Well, I went out to the docks of social media and I talked to fishermen. And <laughs> <laughs> you got to remember, this was Twitter being a little over a year in. And a lot of people were questioning whether Twitter was the next Friendster. Um, was Facebook the next Friendster? Uh, <laughs> were, is social media relevant? Is it here to stay? Is there the right tech talent? Are you going to move to the Valley? There were, there were people that couldn't get their head around social media being a, a, an important category. Uh, looking back now, we know that this is the most important category for customer engagement, right? If you want to connect with your customers, you have to use social media, and that's doubling down. But but a lot of people didn't have vision on that, so they thought it was a, a fad and that ultimately we were going to stick to, you know, the phone line, the 1-800 number, and uh, email, and that has completely gotten flipped on its head. Um the other one around, you know, location, geography, uh, since, you know, Hootsuite is this year, we're going to be 10 years old. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think the world has changed quite a bit since 10 years ago in terms of the the perception around the Valley being the only place in the planet that you can create a successful startup. We've seen great startups, you know, of all colors um, come out of a ton of different places that are, are not in the Valley or not in San Francisco. And so, uh, but it takes vision on both of those. And so I just had to keep shopping until I found, uh, you know, the right people and, and give them my thesis on why, A, the, you know, social media is going to be important and why uh, great startups can happen anywhere in the world. And and when you find that that person, you know, eyes light up, you know, that that's, uh, you know, hugely valuable. And, and we did. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you've talked a lot, Ryan, about wanting to create the PayPal mafia in Canada. I think you have a better, better term for it. Um, yeah. The maple syrup mafia. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. But, but I think that that, that is really uh, a lot of your vision for, for youth entrepreneurship is really about, um, you know, finding these entrepreneurs young and, and figuring out how we build exactly more people like Joe. Yes. Awesome. So, so for Joe, um, you know, talk to me a little bit about competitors. Like, do you have a sense that they're already coming and copying your model? Are they breathing down your neck? Is this a, <laughs> is this a big source of motivation? Um, I know in our early days, I was in an ultra competitive industry and it was a huge part of what was driving us. But, but tell me about how you've thought about that. Yeah, I think the really interesting thing about uh, the seafood industry and the food industry as a whole in terms of distribution, I think uh, we're really starting to see uh, proliferation of technology uh, starting to come into this kind of aging sector. So uh, we would classify competitors into kind of two buckets, uh, more on the traditional kind of wholesaling and distribution arm, uh, which we kind of compete with as well, as well as the technology side where you know, you're seeing companies like, you know, GFresh or Proxy, you know, GFresh, who's, you know, raised a $20 million round backed by Alibaba. Uh, we definitely have them kind of uh, the back of our minds whenever we're building, whenever we're selling. Uh, so they're always keeping us on our toes. So it's a competitive landscape. But in, in terms of whatever industry you go into, you're going to you're gonna face these challenges because, you know, technology is opening up opportunities to disrupt every industry that's out there. And so how, how do you stay ahead of the curve for, for both of you? Like, how have you thought about doing this in your in your businesses? For us, it's really being as lean as possible and nimble and, and, and maintaining that, that 
entrepreneur or startup mindset that has got, kind of gotten us to to where we are. Um, so really instilling that culture within the entire team and really having that focus on innovation, whether it's innovation on the business side, whether it's sales or marketing or innovation on the technology side where you know, we're constantly looking to integrate new technologies, whether it be blockchain, machine learning uh, into our actual uh, stack. Uh, it's really looking at those types of factors and seeing what kind of you know things can give us the competitive edge to to get ahead uh, in this competitive industry. Michelle, I, I know that that you also talk to a lot of startup founders, and uh, I, I think that the other side of the coin is that if I talk to a startup founder and they say they have no competition, I'm like, it's you're you're either unaware because uh, there's somebody out there. I guarantee there's <laughs> totally. two three other people out there doing it somewhere, yeah. or you're doing something that is irrelevant and doesn't make any sense. And, yeah, and, but that other people have tried and no one has made money. That's right. probably <laughs> another reason why there might be no competition. <laughs> right. Um, so both of you quit. Um, or took a break from university to focus on your businesses, which I think, uh, I believe has been a common trait with lots of That was a real euphemism there, Michelle. <laughs> taking a break. I've taken a real long break. <laughs> a 20-year break is just fine. <laughs> when all is said and done, uh, you'll have no problem just, you know, auditing a class or two if, if you ever wanted to. Um, but, you know, what have you learned over the time about kind of taking what I think society would often consider a risky move that a lot of people might advise against. Um, because I get asked this as well all the time. And, and my advice is, you know, there's there's sometimes very limited windows to start a business. And if you're at the right moment, you should just do it now. Are, are you on a break right now, Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> how, do you, how do you think about that? And how do you give advice on, on that? To, it's kind of a question to both of you. Yeah, I mean, I mean for me, I think... Uh, uh, the media has really pushed this uh, prevailing notion that university isn't required or isn't necessary to uh, startup success. I, I agree with that sentiment to a point, but it's not to say that I didn't learn um, in university. And, and really, for me, um, I wouldn't be where I am today without the backing of, of my education during university, even though I didn't finish uh, just having all of those benefits of university, whether it's uh, you know the network that I that I gained or the confidence and and uh, the uh, the ability to you know public speak to network to you know learn how to build a business plan, those are all things that I did kind of incorporate into into my company. Yeah, for myself, I'd say that it is a very personal decision that. Uh, you know, I have people ask about dropping out and, you know, is it a good idea? Should I do it? And I, and I say to them, I, I can't, <laughs> I don't want to advise you on that. It's something that you're going to have to sit and think about. For myself personally, uh, I'd been doing my paintball business for five years at the point I was thinking about dropping out. Um, I'd kind of gotten my mini MBA from that. Uh, I, I felt like I... You know, a lot of the courses I was taking, I kind of already had done in some ways, and I was impatient to go change the world. And I learned from making mistakes, and I learned from doing things. And uh, when you're at that age, you're kind of, it feels like you're making a decision whether you're, for me, it was a decision whether I was going to be employable or not. And in some ways, you know, they talk about burning the boats. It kind of burned the boat for me in that <laughs> the only way I'm going to work my way out of this is to is to figure out a business that's great because— I got to build it. I'm not going to be hireable, uh, and, and so I, I'm going to have to do this. Right, and, and Michelle, I love your point regarding uh, the timing aspect of it. So 
really the thing that I told myself to get over the hump was really what do I have to lose as as a 20-year-old, you know, kid uh, in Vancouver, really. Um, I'll pursue this idea for, for the next year, next two years, next three years, you know. And by the time I'm 23, if it doesn't work out, I would have learned a whole ton. And, you know, the opportunity and the door to go back to university and get my, my degree is really there. But the same really can't be said for the opportunity that I'm that I'm pursuing. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. And, you know, it's funny because... We're, we're talking about the same things, but, you know, Ryan is saying this, you know, when you burn the boats, you don't have a backup plan. You, you really make plan A successful. And it's also the way that I've always thought about any of these businesses. I'm like, I'm just going to do this for six months. And it forces this incredible sense of urgency to create, you know, traction and something that's working. But I think that, that if you can get comfortable with that, uh, it, can also make you, uh, it can also make you extraordinarily happy. I think founders in general are usually... And and by nature have to be optimistic and think about the the opportunity ahead of them. I mean, history is written by optimists, and mm-hmm. you know Always. why I say that. Yeah, you, you don't you don't like hop on a ship and sail to the new world if you don't believe that the new world exists out there. So that's a, a leap of faith and optimism. You don't go you know create a mission to go to the moon if you're not going to be optimistic that you can make it. And um, it's been, it's pretty interesting as as we get to scale, I'd say, where you get people that aren't those founder type people. You get, you know, risk management people and those risk management people like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, hopping in that <laughs> rocket ship, can we talk about this or, <laughs> or, you know, whatever that is. Negative Nancy shows <laughs> up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Safety nets, Michelle. Uh, yeah. And, and <laughs> um, it, it's just their, their, their makeup. We all have a different makeup, but it's true. Most founders have to be optimists. Joe had a feeling that if he made the seafood industry simpler and more efficient, he'd make it more delicious for the people who eat and more profitable for the people that do the fishing. So he built Coastline by stripping away layers of middlemen and improved business for his customers on the docks and in the kitchens. Ryan had a hunch early on that social media wasn't a passing fad. And he built a billion-dollar company holding to that belief. Success has given him an additional insight into how growth happens. I loved his observation that people think that young people are the only ones with a world-changing idea. And you could actually capitalize on that stereotype. But even more effective is his counterintuitive approach to funding. By recasting the relationship between founder and investor, you give people an opportunity to be part of your vision. You're no longer depending on them to make it happen. Vision plus simplicity plus leadership, it's a recipe for success. This is Earning Curve, a podcast from Interac and Gimlet Creative. Additional production by Transmitter Media. I'm Michelle Romano. Thanks for listening.